aesthetics of pop. Aesthetics of Pop podcast. I'm Todd Burns, the editor of stylusmagazine.com, and on this episode of the Aesthetics of Pop podcast, we talked to Chris Ott. Before we began playing tracks and talking about them, I asked Chris to tell us a little bit about his writing background. All right, so I was writing for uh, Eric Mast, who does now the label Audio Drags with his brother Evan, who is Ratatat with the guitar player. The two of them are Ratatat. They're they just did their new album at Bjork's house. Yeah. <laughs> Not jealous of them at all, dude. <laughs> Those guys, forget it. I wouldn't want their life. Oh, God. So more power to Evan. But uh, Eric's doing great, too. He's on a different thing. Eric's much more involved in the arts. Um, he still runs audio dregs. He's still really involved with you know a lot of European acts and bands that are still doing minimalist electronica stuff. Anyway, Eric in college, we went to college together, uh, upstate New York. And uh, he had a he was doing a paper photocopy zine pre-net, and so I was writing for them, and I did this big thing on Spaceman Three when um, the Spiritualized Royal Albert Hall live record came out. It was kind of an overview thing, and I thought, man, I really like doing that. So then I started thinking about writing more seriously, and I actually sent that piece to Ryan Schreiber, who you know runs Pitchfork, and he wrote me back, and he's like, here's how this works, and. So he would send packages of CDs, and he'd be like, here's 45 CDs, review all of them. And there would be stuff in there that like, wasn't even on a label, and I'm like, do I have to review that? I mean, at that point, I was like, yeah, i got to review it all. That's what I'm supposed to do. So I didn't know Ryan at all. I didn't know that he was actually like, a little bit younger than me and was out you know, in the Midwest doing a different, whole, totally different scene. Um, but I, you know, obviously I found out pretty quickly. I mean, at that time, remember, it was wide open. You had, like, Drawer B and Yadzine and Pillow Fight and names nobody remembers. Cupid Kidnap, of course, Westy, Western Homes. Yeah. Like, all these people were vying. There was no, like, blogs weren't even a thing. So if you were going to express yourself, it had to be a zine. And that, that transition from the zine, you know, culture of the 80s online lasted a few years and there were a lot of people competing for it and Ryan just had he was the one who stayed up all night every night and kind of last outlasted everybody and then people gravitated to him too because he was getting the content out there so you knew that your stuff was going to get published and he also was he wasn't at that time tracking readership but you know soon after because he I, I got fired he said you know I don't want you to write for the site anymore and uh, we had this falling out over a couple of reviews I wrote and um, so then, I, but I came back in 2002 or something for a good two years and was much more involved in the site at that point. I was editing the reviews for a while. I kind of told Ryan, like, you need a vacation, man. Like, you know, and I, I edited all the reviews for about six months, maybe a little longer. But at that time, that's when the site really started picking up. It was after the strokes, and it was when this stuff was becoming much more interesting to a bigger population of people. And... You know, I had a lot of ideas about how I thought the site should go. Obviously, it's his site at the end of the day. And one of the main things was when we were redoing the 90s Top 100. You know, I, that was my teenage stuff, so I was very invested in those records. Right. And I felt like a lot of the staff, for the first time, was reflecting what Pitchfork had originally said the best records of the 90s were. And now, all of a sudden, we're a snake eating its tail. 
and I think everybody else had the impression that I was totally nuts and that <laughs> like it's not that big a deal blah 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 but I got really upset about this and I was like man I can't you know this isn't for me so I left there and then it was this whole thing of you know what am I going to do now and I'd always loved Perfect Sound Forever Jason just gets the best content I mean the interviews the people it's like where is this where does he get this stuff he had like a nine page interview with Keith Levine and all these amazing features but the site I felt was kind of you know it, it's not it's not a commercial website you know it's very much a, a homegrown website and most people actually prefer that I found out a lot of people didn't like what um, I did I mean I didn't do it I kind of was the middleman I had a friend in Boston who was a great web designer and I wanted him to really you know show that on this I had this idea like we'll do a black and white site it'd be totally grayscale like an old zine which is much more what the content is like very grassroots for perfect sound forever he's like yeah this sounds great I think it's a good idea if you have the time you know go ahead and do it and it it went it was really fun for a little while but you know Jason works very much in spurts with this because he has so much else on his plate he is involved in I mean the feelies reissues delta Fi, everything you know what I mean it's like when you really sit down and talk to the guy, the things he's involved in, you're, it, it just completely, for me anyway, it kind of spun my head around. So that became clear to me that this, this was a labor of love for him and that, you know, schedules of dealing with writers, of getting content on a routine basis, which is the basis of, like, you know, Pitchfork and Stylus, how you guys succeed is constant content. So um, that wasn't the way that worked, and so the site just kind of, uh, it fell away in terms of being able to be a a week-to-week even cycle where we could get it done. And at that point, when that didn't work out, um, I I had a lot lot of other things going on here personally in my life that I had to get sorted out work-wise and things like that. And when I came back out the other side of it, um, I started the blog, Shallow Rewards, which was October of last year, 2005, I was just sitting around the house and, you know, light bulb, boom. I, sh- I should blog about how on eBay people are paying like three grand for, you know, f- translator singles or whatever, just like completely ridiculous bands from the 80s, the 70s, whatever. And then I started looking into it and like Funk 45s are going for $12,000 routinely. Like it was just totally insane. So I spent a few months reading up on it and uh, then I started the blog and it's been a lot of fun. I mean, the readership is, you know, obviously a tiny little toothpick of a shadow mm-hmm. uh, underneath the umbrella of something like Pitchfork or even Stylus. I mean, it, the readership is obviously very limited. It's mostly other rock writers, um, people like us that are reading it. But I hope it's enjoyable to them. I've gotten a lot of emails from people that have previously pretty much hated me and hated <laughs> everything I've written, and they're like, I think this is a really good outlet. Your tone is obviously a lot less bitter. <laughs> You're able to get the informational thing out and not really piss everybody off.
So what drew you first to uh, Manuel? I, the, the thing that really got me about him is that he was so young. And when I first heard him, I was already, I think I was about four years older than him. And he'd already done everything that I thought I wanted to do and that it seemed so impossible to me because I didn't play guitar. I played drums. I didn't know all that much about effects pedals. I knew, like, you know, the basics. Okay, if you want to sound like slow dive, you get a DD3 or a DD6. And there's a couple of effects that I really can that anybody who's played in a band would know. But the stuff he was doing was so... It was just so far away. Like, there's so many dynamic effects he has on the guitar and releases and gates and all this stuff that... I mean, even with even if you had Pro Tools or you had, I don't even know actually what he uses. I have no idea. But if you had all those things, it's still because I was messing around with a lot of digital recording stuff, doing my own, you know, much simpler mm-hmm. you know, stuff. And when I heard what he was doing, it was just like, I, I, it, you know what I mean? It, it was like the promise of. And I wrote this up when I, I did a when I reviewed, I don't know which one, if it was Isaris or whatever, but it's like the promise of all the stuff we were, everyone was really excited about electronica and the nineties and, you know, I mean, over eagerly listening to sea feel and who are still great, but like Attacker and all this stuff that has not, in my view, aged that well, his stuff like delivered on all that. And it was the same argument a lot of people made for kid a, but I liked the fact that he didn't have that, like, you know, Orwellian, whatever cliched word you want to throw out. He doesn't have the baggage of, the politics and the social politics that Radiohead comes with. Mm-hmm. It's just completely emotional landscape, which is my favorite stuff to listen to on my own. What Do you listen to him now? I mean, are you satisfied with what he's doing now? I mean, if he can... Because it seems like, to me, he hasn't progressed, so to speak. Well, that... I mean, I... <sighs> I haven't. <laughs> I stopped. I didn't review any of his later stuff because I, at that point, wasn't writing for Pitchfork or Perfect Sound Forever or anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't even have the blog going. He has a new record you mentioned. I didn't even know that it's coming out soon. But he went. He got really into, from the way I hear it, he got really into the sonics and the templates that were being used in the '80s, to a degree where. I mean, he's just trying to replicate exactly what drum machines sounded like and exactly what the synths were in the 80s and it's cool in a way but it's like it's like walking through a museum sonically when you listen to those records and they're so overloaded and procedural like every melody builds into the next melody just keeps going and going and it's just it's overkill like it's so it's just completely too much pain on the canvas needs to pare it back and when you start it out there was all of that. There was all the space and the counterpoint and the guitar riff would die away and then something else would churn up and it just kept drawing you back in. The new stuff is just, it's completely flat. It's just right at you. Leave you when the summer comes
calling me the way it used to do
well, I mean, there's so much going on in Led Zeppelin that I could think that you would be like excited about, but I think it's more the totality. Well, they're just they're one of the best new bands. Like you know, editors are okay, but you guys have got to check out Led Zeppelin. I know you're trying to get new sounds. It's 2006. No, sorry, but um, I got I got completely obsessed with Babe. I'm gonna leave you. I, it was like my sophomore year of high school. I had this tape, and it was like Smiths and Police and just you know like it was like every totemic huge iconic song like every breath you take was on that you know what i mean like it was just all that stuff and i had i had when the levee breaks on it and for whatever reason i don't know why because they're not on the same record obviously they're opposite ends of the career but i had babe i'm gonna leave you after that and the tape got cut off so I just, whenever I was driving around or people were driving me around at that point, I didn't have my license, that would get cut off and we'd always be like, God damn it, because it was like the best part where it completely blows up. But now, you know, like after so many years of totally over-intellectualizing music and stuff like that, I mean, it's just it's just one of those simple one, two, three things. You get hard rock as it's coming up, you get blues and you get folk, like, you know, Hobbit, Tolkien, folk, but it's... You know, I mean, it's a completely huge song, and it, it there's there's always another one that's that's the one people point to, whether it's for commercials or it's stairway or whatever. But that one, there's this. If you listen, like when it's going in the hard part on the mm-hmm. on the upbeat of the snare, there's some guitar overdub in there. It's all treble, and it's just like it's just it's totally prefigures any obviously sampling or whatever. I mean, it wasn't that far off that drum machines wherever can but it just has this like rhythmic overdub that's people were not doing anything like that like it's an eq thing so there's a sonic element of it where i always look back to it and think like god that's you know they must have heard it in their heads and said how can we do this and i think they did it through raw eq through like just having a mic that was far enough away from an amp that all it got was treble so i mean it's hard to put it into words without singing it and <laughs> saying listen for this part which I'm not going to do but it's in the heart the, the yeah it's like the music's coming through me <laughs> Oh
apparently you you have a, a story that you you want to tell um <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know how much of the story i want to tell but uh burma mission of burma is like you know growing up outside of boston coming into boston for shows as a teenager Lemonheads, Juliana Hatfield, Pixies Would Play, Dinosaur Jr., all these bands that a lot of them have really had some surprising endurance in, you know, what we talk about. Um, but anyway, I, so, yeah, you know, Burma was completely dead, but you, the Ryko Disc 88 CD of, you know, just called Mission of Burma with 31 or 30 tracks that had 1970 on it, that was a really big CD even with skate kids, you know, that were just just finding out about punk and listening to Danzig or whatever. So I got into them that way, and then later on when I came back, I knew there were a few people that I knew, like I absolutely wanted to try and interview out of being mm-hmm. involved with Pitchfork. And Peter was somebody I'd known for, I don't want to say known, I mean, it's not like a personal friend, but he was a guy who, he was working at Mystery Train, which became Smash City, which I think is uh, laundromat now on Newbury Street it's a complete tragedy but they he was working there for the longest time and I would go in and like Juliana Hatfield used to work there and one of the guys the main guy from the Gigolo Ants, and it was just the place where they hooked up Boston musicians with jobs mm-hmm. and he was just always really open because I was really nervous when I was a kid I wanted to make sure like I didn't look like an idiot like this kid's like you know doesn't know shit about music or whatever and he was just always really cool to me I was probably 19 the first time I went in there and was talking to him and he was just always open about stuff so he he would introduce me to a lot of things and he gave me like some Volcano Sons tapes from you know that they didn't that weren't out or whatever and uh, so when they reunited and I was at Pitchfork at that time it was perfect time to go in and interview him and we talked about some stuff he sent me some some guest tickets for a couple of cool things one was the show where Sonic Youth canceled at the uh the fleet arena on the water in Boston. It's right on the water. And it was at a time of year where it was really overcast and windy. It was just amazing. And you go in there, so it's Wilco, and it's supposed to be Wilco and Sonic Youth. But everybody knows Sonic Youth's canceled. So tons of people don't know that Burma is actually playing this. They used it as kind of a big warm-up gig, in a way, because mm-hmm. it was early on in the reunion. He sent uh, me and a buddy of mine tickets. We went down and they just ripped the place in half. And there was barely anybody there, and a lot of the people didn't know what was going on. As soon as they finished, almost all the people that were right up there watching them left. And Wilco came out and was like, uh, and then like the people who were out by the food court that didn't give a <laughs> shit about Burma, they start streaming in, and you like you talk about completely obvious you know, definition of fan base. People were walking by, like, you know they have like big-time County Crows fan. So... Anyway, but the story I was going to tell about the new album is uh, I went to the Bowery Ballroom preview show. A buddy of mine it was one of my groomsmen at my wedding. He's like, look, before you move out of Manhattan, I am taking you to a show. We're going out together. So we went. He took me out to see one of the, the show at the ballroom. And I hadn't gone out in like a while. I don't go to shows that often. And I just ended up getting completely smashed out of my mind. Like, just drinking ridiculous like two fisting Stella and just it was disgusting and I just I <laughs> the show wasn't that great it wasn't going that great it was kind of flat and people were like oh you know people were kind of standing around a little bit it's not a great venue to really rip it up yeah. but anyway by the end of it I was so drunk and they came out for the encore and they, they they opened I think they opened the encore with this is not a photograph and I just started jumping on this guy in front of me pogoing and like I probably fell over three times I completely blacked out I don't remember the end of the show but I was just like, you know, 
Let's make it happen, guys. You know, DIY. It was just so pathetic. I don't even remember, I'm not sure I remember his name right. I think his name was Sean Fanning. 
something like that, but he was this guy. It's just one of those really instructive things where, you know, there was a period, and I guess it's the same for everybody, every, like, age group, when you're coming out of college, you start, everyone starts looking for, or trying to f find reflections of the fact that people my age are doing something, and he was this guy who, I think he was from Ohio, you know, I, w I wish, I mean, I should have Googled up the story before I had you play it, but he, he was this guy who was doing stuff as flowchart. He was involved with Darla, I think, and the junior varsity guy. And all these, you know, this was the bedroom electronica thing, Land of the Loops, all these bands, what's going on? There was all this little budding hype around all these guys. And he had done this pastiche kind of collage song that you heard, and it sounds, I mean, pretty much sounds like, five you know records from the 60s or 50s instructional records about how to clean your oven or whatever right. how to raise your kid <clears throat> and uh so he was one of these guys and there was this interview with him and i couldn't believe it it was about a year and a half after that had come out he'd done a full length the full length had really diverted from that kind of you know low budget loop around sound and he was bragging about the fact that he was making a thousand dollars a night DJing or something. And he's like, I can go out, man, and I can DJ and make like a grand a night. And I was just like, Oh, it's a fucking horrible thing to say. <laughs> like, first of all, I mean, I don't know if like, I, if maybe he's a really good DJ. I'm, I don't know how good a DJ can be. That's a whole other conversation, but he was, I mean, it was just the most disgusting thing. It was really disheartening and he completely fell off and, you know, he probably has a day job now, like the guys from braid and everybody else from the late nineties. But he, I just was, it was so gross to see him be like, you know, yeah, that was early days, seven inches, man, I'm totally full-time now, I'm pro, I get paid from what I, you know, it was just, well, so it was a sad example of the way uh, the puritanic indie dream can head south pretty quick. <laughs>
doleful lines? What's I mean? Do, uh, not gonna do, judgment or doleful lines is pretty much uh, one guy. Nothing, almost nothing else that he and they have done sounds like this. A lot of the stuff they've done since sounds more like uh, I don't know, Galaxy Five Hundred. It's just much more like reverb, big guitar. It sounds professional. Parasol Records kind of stuff. Um, I think he is on or distributed by Parasol, but that song, I just, there's something about it. I mean, I get being huge into My Bloody Valentine and drone stuff. This is like a combination of beat happening, bedroom, playing on a cardboard box. I mean, he still gets a drone because of, um, he, I actually emailed him and asked him for the tabs for the song because I wasn't going to find them online. And he said the reason, you know, it sounds like this is I capo two different frets on each guitar. And that's why you get this really huge um, chromatic, melodic drone to it. So it's just two sides of two coins that I really like. I've always liked, I've always had a soft spot for really good twee. Not like happy, poppy twee. I like the more, you know, sad, whatever stuff, you know, like tiger trap those kind of things so it's that and then it's also got the the drone thing which is i've i mean i'm unabashedly like uh from the time i was 14 15 years old shoegaze was like the number one thing that i listened to and still it's you know predominantly what i listen to what i get when i get home whenever i'm like what i want to listen to it's something like that you know it's ride it's cocktail twins it's something like that so um yeah i mean but the other thing about that was it reminded me of this band Summer Hymns and Summer Hymns was this huge, completely overhyped DIY whatever band, indie band in the 90s. Um, it was one of the early bands that I remember Pitchfork really making a name on getting behind. And it was the first time I realized that, that Pitchfork was really actually having an impact because I went at that time I was in Boston, I was working in Boston. I went to the Newbury Comics in Government Center and if you're not from Boston, you won't know what I'm talking about. But if you are, the Newbury Comics and Government Center is the last place you want to go to try and find something that's pretty obscure because they're kind of, if they're even still there, they're falling off the end of the distribution chain for that chain of stores. So, but I went in there and I, and I don't know how many weeks it was after the Pitchfork review had run and there was some buzz online about it. Right in the front display counter, there were like 10 copies of Summer Hymns. And I knew their distro wasn't that strong, so it seemed like people were using Pitchfork already as a way to authenticate what they were doing and say, you know, here's this review, people are really reading about it, and then that helped them get distribution. Now it's just completely bypassed. It's, you know, you put a sticker on it, bam, Pitchfork, gets right. you in the distribution channels. But back then, it was the first kind of glimmer of that.